dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The passage before us this morning includes some of the most memorized passages in the Bible. Many of us probably recognize the famous verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Perhaps some of us even have that written on our wall somewhere. Or perhaps we've memorized verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whether we've memorized them or not, they're worthy of hiding in our hearts. They're beautiful verses, practical verses. But they're only the most famous verses in what is, in its whole, a beautiful and practical passage. The other verses are worth knowing too. You see, in this passage, the Apostle Paul calls the church at Philippi to live lives defined by peace. He calls them to peace in their relationships with one another. He calls them to pursue peace by their actions. And he even calls them to pursue peace through their thoughts. And as heirs of God's word today, we also inherit Paul's exhortations. And we too are called to live lives characterized by peace. There's a question, how can we? One of the things that we've seen in the last couple of years is that even at times getting along with fellow believers can be a challenge. We're different people, different personalities, aren't we? Paul calls us to rejoice and not be anxious. But every morning you wake up to new emails, to new news headlines that strike anxiety into the most calm heart. Paul calls us to think on excellent and praiseworthy things, but we're surrounded by things that are far from excellent or praiseworthy. And often our own minds are all too inclined to dwell on, on the negatives, on the fears, on the things we see around us. So we ask, well, what's the key here? The key is the God of peace and the peace of God. You see, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul isn't writing this letter as he's sunbathing on some tropical island. Paul's writing from prison. Perhaps Paul is even writing through dictating to someone else, writing it down because he's in chains. And when Paul calls for peace, even between Iodia and Syntyche, two members of that congregation, he does so as someone who knows full well what it is to, to struggle with people in the church. There in, there in Rome, as he was writing, there was a faction in the church that was against him. Famously, he had that conflict of, of personalities with his, his mission partner. And when Paul addresses the need for discerning and upbuilding thoughts, he does so with more reasons than most of us for despair. But you see, Paul is God's servant of peace. And Paul serves a God of peace, a God who is so great that even the most powerful forces, the, the most worrying things that we can see remain under his control. 
And it is a God who has set such a promise of hope and life before Paul that, that even the worst of this life, as he writes from prison, he says, if it is experienced with Christ, because of Christ, it's but a passing challenge. And so Paul calls us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And since we worship a God of peace, Paul calls us to live lives defined by peace. And may God give us ears to hear. First, we see that we're called to pursue peace in our relationships. Our passage begins on what may seem a strange note. Paul does what he almost never does. He names names. He calls for Iodia and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. A little background on the church in Philippi. If you know the book of Acts well, you may remember that that women played an important part in the beginning of this church at Philippi. The, the first convert that we know of in the region was Lydia, the seller of purple. And she was not only the first convert, but she was the one who let Paul and, and Silas and the rest of the group stay at her house as they worked as missionaries in that area. And then, of course, there was the slave girl who was used by her masters to produce a great profit by telling the future whom Paul delivered the demon from which resulted in him going to prison, which resulted in that famous earthquake and the Philippian jailer's conversion. And so women were very involved in the formation of that church there. But at present, there remained two godly women of note, Iodia and Syntyche. And Paul describes them as having contended at his side in the gospel. He doesn't shy away from saying that. And so whatever picture we may have in our minds of these two women, perhaps we have a negative one, it seems they were not known as nasty, selfish individuals. They had demonstrated their love for Christ by laboring with Paul. Paul goes as far as to suggest that these women's names are written in the book of life. But he says that they are at odds with each other. We don't know what the root cause was. Perhaps it's related to the rivalry that's mentioned back in Philippians 2 verse 3 where Paul talks about not not having our own selfish causes as our goal. Perhaps it's something else. Regardless of what it is, they had had a falling out and they were not of the same mind. And their conflict was in fact doing damage to the witness of the gospel, the very gospel that they had worked with Paul to spread in that area. Sadly, for most of us, the news of two people at odds in the church is nothing new. It seems that the church at Philippi knew the same strife and tension between members as as every church that we've known in, in this life will, or perhaps has in the past. There's a little poem that describes this sad situation in churches so well. It goes like this. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And to our shame, that poem rings true, doesn't it? We admit the challenge of living with fellow believers. Yet notice what the Apostle Paul does when he comes to this issue. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't just write it off as, well, that's just their personalities. 
he gently addresses it head on. This was a letter that, don't forget, would be read in front of the whole gathered church. And so Paul boldly calls for them to resolve their tension in public. Now, this isn't a blueprint for us to address any tension in our churches by by calling it out from the pulpit. But it shows us something. It shows us how seriously the Apostle Paul took this matter. It shows us how seriously our God takes such matters. And Paul doesn't simply address the two women. He also calls for an unnamed man to help them intervene. This man is unknown to us, but he was very well known to the church there. So well known that Paul doesn't even have to say his name. They know who he is. It's possible this man was, in fact, Luke, the physician, the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts. But, but that's only an educated guess. We don't know. At any rate, Paul asks this unknown man to help the women. And the way he phrases his requests suggests that there was probably some effort at reconciliation already at play. That's all the more likely because these two women that he speaks of were known as godly women. They have a desire to serve Christ. And there's no room for harboring tension and dispute in Christ's call for his church. We serve a God of peace and therefore we're called to live together with one another in peace. But how do we seek peace? Well, this passage gives us some insights. Perhaps it's by seeking a mediator. Perhaps there's someone we just cannot get along with or see eye to eye on something, and so we need someone else to to intervene for us. Perhaps it's by doing what that little poem does so well, reminding us of our hope for eternity. Meditating on the reality that we and this fellow member share a hope of eternity together. And how can it be that we cannot even see past or whatever our difference may be in this life, and yet we look together to share in the same of eternity, worshiping the same God? That too motivates us for peace, doesn't it? We may not be close with everyone in Christ's body, but we're called to be at peace. We're called to share the same mind, the same focus on the glory, not of ourselves, but of Christ. Ultimately, our hope for peace with one another rests on our identity as those who have been shown grace upon grace by our God. When we think about the grace that God has shown us, sinners though we are, it gives us that much more energy, more motivation to show grace to one another, does it not? How much more shouldn't we be known for forgiving wrongs, for seeing past faults? We must pray that God would give us grace, more grace. Pray confidently, knowing that he delights to give good gifts to his people. But Paul's not just talking about this particular relationship. Having addressed the matter of peace between members of the church, Paul addresses all the members, and he calls for peace in our actions. One of the strongest antidotes to disagreements and tension is joy particularly joy in the Lord. And so Paul moves to call us to rejoice. If you can imagine the original setting in which this letter was was given, was first read, it would have been something similar to our church service today. 
the members of the church at Philippi would have gathered together, probably in one room. And someone, perhaps even Epaphroditus, who was the man who carried the letter there, would stand before them and read it out. By the time they got to this part of the letter, they'd been reading for a few minutes already. We've, we all know how it is sometimes when you're sitting in church, your mind wanders. Well, perhaps that happens to some of them there that morning. Maybe the words had begun to run together a little bit. But Paul wants to draw their attention to what he's about to say. He's not going to let them miss this point. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. In our introduction, we noted that Paul wasn't writing this letter in particularly joyful situations. Neither were the Philippians themselves much better off. Yet Paul calls for joy. And it's not, it's not an idealistic call. It's a, a real call. He calls for joy because together they have a hope in Jesus Christ that is able to make up for all the sufferings that they're enduring. Whatever they may experience for his sake is worth it. And this joy that he calls them to isn't, isn't the joy that we often think about. It's not a joy that's dependent on good news headlines, on, on waking up and, and finding out that something good has happened, or on happy circumstances, good news from a friend, or even on good health, feeling great. But it's a joy that's to be ours, what, whatever the circumstances are. Not in the sense of some fake or giddy happiness all the time, but in a deep immovable joy, a joy that has a hope for the future based on what your Savior has done for you, a joy that that knows the God of salvation, a God who has moved towards you in Christ, a joy that is yours when you reflect on, on all of your sins and your shortcomings in reality, and you recognize the promises in God's Word are that He has forgiven you these in Christ. A joy that comes when you recognize your failures, but you recognize the overwhelming grace of God, the overwhelming worthiness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that you have been set free, that the chains of sin that once bound you have been broken, that God calls you His, and you can call Him yours. It's a joy that that King David writes about in Psalm 40. He says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. That describes the Christian life, at least it should. As we think back onto what God has saved us from and and to the hope of a future with him, we have a new song, do we not? Paul follows up this command with a command to gentleness. Paul has here in mind the gentleness of Christ. Famously in Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly. In Philippians 2, verse 6, earlier in this same letter, Paul calls us to share the mind of Christ. How, we ask. Well, by not grasping our own rights, 
by becoming humble to serve for love's sake, just as the Lord of creation himself became humble, coming in the likeness and the nature of humanity to save his people. It is this gentleness that will prevent and heal the kind of rift that happened between Eodia and Syntyche. Unlike selfishness and pride, which, which drive people away, joy and gentleness, they, they bring people in, don't they? And that, too, is a wonderful witness to the world in which we live in. When they come into the body of Christ, the local church, and they see joy and gentleness among God's people. It's a witness to what God can do for us. Both Paul's call to rejoice and his call to gentleness find their foundation in the phrase, the Lord is at hand. The Lord's nearness gives cause for joy. It allays our anxiety. Does Paul mean that the Lord is close? Or does he mean that his return is soon? Likely, Paul means both here. They both come to our mind. We're promised that our Savior will never leave us, that he is present with his spirit within us. That though he is physically in heaven, he has given us this gift of the comforter. We're also told that his return is soon. And any moment we don't know. And so we live with a constant expectation of that return. And it is this nearness of Christ that lets Paul confidently exhort the Philippians, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Perhaps this is the hardest command that Paul gives in this passage. Don't be anxious. Does Paul know what he's saying? Does he know what it's like to read the news headlines of our day and age? Does he know what it's like to hear what's going on around us in the world? We do have cause to worry, don't we? What's going on in Ukraine? How much is that going to escalate? Is that going to, to affect us over here? In some ways, it already has. What will happen in, in those people's lives? What's going on in, in our country here? We see bill after bill become law that opposes the truth of God, sometimes very blatantly and strongly. What's the, the future of Canada look like? We see financial crisis coming our way, perhaps. Just this past week, we saw the interest rates reach another 31-year high. We see financial gurus forecasting a, a recession in the next two years. And then we think back to what we've just experienced. We've, we've experienced perhaps the biggest disruption in society since World War II in the past two years. Some of us have even lost our jobs. And Paul says, don't be anxious. But dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul's not the only one who gives this command. You see, Jesus also forbids worry. In Matthew 6 alone, he forbids it three times. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, verse 25. He says, so do not be anxious, verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, verse 34. And Paul reminds us of our Lord's clear command, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious 
but rather pray. Prayer is the antidote to anxiety. And recognize that that this command isn't coming from someone who's lived in some ivory tower his whole life. Paul writes this with life experience. Paul tells us this as someone who's devoted his life to following Christ and who's paid the price for it many times. He's telling us this as someone who's experienced the threat of an angry mob several times, who's been beaten physically, who's been put into prison, who's been attacked by robbers on his way to bring God's good news to his people, who's experienced shipwreck and more. Paul knows what he's asking here. But still, he calls us to not be anxious. He calls us to find comfort and peace in prayer. He says, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The effects of sin in this world make it a very dark place at times, don't they? But dear brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, we need not be overcome with anxiety. We have a Father in heaven who loves us. More than that, he has promised to deliver us from all evil or to turn it to our good. And even when our faith is weak, when we struggle to really believe those promises, still he works in us by his spirit to to strengthen us, to build up our feeble faith. And so you see the hope that Paul sets before us, don't you? You see why he's so confident He says, in the fruit of all of this, the rejoicing, the gentleness, the prayer, all of that will yield the fruit of peace. We'll be able to say, it is well with my soul. And finally, Paul calls us to guard our thoughts. He says, even our minds can pursue this peace of God. In verses 4 through 7, or if verses 4 through 7 describe finding peace in spite of whatever unpeaceful situation we may be in, Verses 8 through 9 describe pursuing peace as a state of mind. The apostle of Paul is aware of how influential our minds are to our life. So he calls us to, to harness our minds, to bring them under control, to channel our thinking towards edifying things. At first glance, as you read through this verse, it almost sounds like Paul's setting before us some power of positive thinking. In fact, when Paul was writing this, there was a movement in the Greek culture known as Stoicism that taught something like that. They taught that that all that matters, whatever you face in life, is your attitude, it's your mindset. Bodily influences are earthly and weak. With the right mindset, when you rise above it, there you find strength. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's taking the current current cultural ideas of his day and he's he's changing them so that they become Christian. He says, far from teaching the power of positive thinking, Paul shows us that Christianity covers all of our lives, even our thoughts. He calls us to think on whatever is true. As Christians, when we hear whatever is true, we, we think of Christ as the ultimate embodiment of truth. 
God's word is truth. Mind that thinks on what is true not only sees Christ and the Bible, but it also uses that as a lens with which to see the world around us, a Christian worldview. It helps us to, to see the meaning in life. Life has meaning because we believe in a God who has given us this life. We see that our purpose is greater than simply living life and, and trying to get our, our biggest slice of the pie we can grab. We're here with a purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Confession says. A mind that thinks on what is true will not be led astray by the temptations and distractions of this world. Then Paul adds, whatever is honorable. Paul's urging us to focus on what is dignified and honorable and to pursue such things. And then Paul says, think on whatever is just or right. Calls for the right thoughts, for the right actions, for doing the right thing. And then whatever is pure. Paul's focus here is not only on sexual purity, but on all areas of moral purity. He calls us to thoughts that are good, not, not tainted with evil. Fifth, he says, think on whatever is lovely. Lovely includes things that are morally beautiful, but it also extends to the aesthetic world, to the, the world of what we see. As one commentary says, from, from a sunset to a symphony, to caring for the poor and powerless, all things beautiful. Sixth, Paul says, whatever is commendable. Here, Paul has the idea of whatever would, would receive a positive review, whatever is admirable, whatever is worthy of honor from other people. You see, Paul's point here in giving us this list of things to, to seek with our minds is, is to show us the importance of harnessing this power of our minds positively. Sometimes our minds are open. We let them drift through life like a boat floating down a stream, bumping into obstacles along the way, and whatever we, we bump into, we think about. But Paul says, no, it's not the mindset of a Christian. He says our minds should be directed. We should employ them in a positive way to, to focus on the good and the godly, to seek God even in our thoughts. That's something, isn't it? Think about how much our daily life would change if we weighed every thought process that we were experiencing. If we took every pattern of thoughts and we held it up to the standards that Paul's just given us. How much of our Facebook or our Instagram or our YouTube feed would survive? How many of our shows would, would pass this list? Or think about how our actions would change, too. I think we would find ourselves putting into practice the, the, the things Paul writes of, the standing firm in the gospel in spite of pressure from the outside. Having the mindset of Christ in humility towards those around us. The working out of our own salvation in fear and trembling, not in the sense of an Arminian view of salvation, but in the sense of, of working towards what God calls us to. We would be considering our works righteousness worthless, as Paul does in chapter 3, compared to the glorious freedom of righteousness in Christ. All of these things would change in our minds and in our actions. And our focus in life would change too. 
We'd spend more time in God's word, thinking God's thoughts after him. And this would change the way we think about life, wouldn't it? As we meditate more on our Father in heaven, on what he's doing here. We would be far more hopeful for the future, far more content in the present, and far more at peace, knowing that our Father holds the world in his hands. This is not to, to turn this into a sermon that boils down to pray more and read your Bible more. But Paul does challenge us on those issues here, doesn't he? How much of our worry or anxiety aren't a product of of what we allow to take our focus of our day? How much more peaceful wouldn't we be if we were harnessing our, our minds and our thoughts the way Paul calls us to here? Particularly through prayer and Bible reading. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? But the answer that we're left with is not to, to go home with our heads hung down and to vow to try harder. The answer is to be, as Paul is, aware of what God has done for us in Christ. Aware of who our God is. And the answer is to be, to be captivated with the glory of God and what he has done for us and for you. To be enthralled by our God of peace. To to serve him in all that we do. To love him for who he is and what he has done. And that, that will give us this lasting peace. And to that end we pray. Trusting that our God hears because he promises that he will hear us. For the sake of Jesus, his son. Trusting that he will give us this peace that we pray for. Trusting that he is sufficient for all the needs and worries that we may face in this world. Trusting at the end of the day that our God is worthy of all that we give him. Amen. We'll now sing together a song of response. We'll sing Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2. And we'll stand to sing Psalm 133.